We're looking at Daniel chapter 5, which God speaks to us, and God works by his spirit through his words. Uh, Let's ask him to do that as we dig into Daniel 5 together. Let's pray. Father, please do be at work in us. Please help us to give attention to you as you speak these words to us. Uh, Please do give us soft hearts uh, that we'd trust you the God who reveals what is to us. In the Lord Jesus, amen. Daniel chapter 5 is Belshazzar's story. It comes straight after we hear Nebuchadnezzar tell his own story. Belshazzar didn't get to tell his story like Nebuchadnezzar did. He didn't live to tell his story. Why are these two stories so different? And what does the difference teach us? Chapter 5 picks up more than uh, 20 years after the things uh, in chapter 4 happened. Uh, I think it'll help you just have a little bit of background as we get into it. Nebuchadnezzar rules uh, from 605 to 562 BC. That's about 43 years. There's then a pretty quick turnover of kings for a few years. And then Nebuchadnezzar's son, Nabonidus, ruled from 556 to 539 BC, 17 years. Chapter 5 happened on the last year of Nabonidus' rule as king of Babylon. Uh, So more than 20 years uh, since chapter 4. 66 years actually since uh, chapter 1 when Daniel was taken into exile. Which puts Daniel probably in, well, Daniel into the 80s at at this point. Nabonidus um, was the emperor, was the empire's king when Babylon fell. So, what about Belshazzar? Who's he? Uh, for years, there was no mention uh, of him outside the Bible, and some scholars thought, well, he's just been made up by Daniel. Uh, Daniel's telling something, and it doesn't fit history, so the Bible's not true. Well, the weird thing is, uh, with ancient history, the weird thing is actually archaeological discoveries can mean that we can know more now than people knew centuries ago. Because new information gets dug up. Well, actually, old information gets dug up, and then we have it. Nabonidus lived outside of Babylon for about ten years, and while he was outside, during that time, his son, Belshazzar, was functionally king of Babylon. He was the second ruler of the kingdom. He was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. So Daniel will call Nebuchadnezzar Belshazzar's father, but that's just like in the Bible all the time. You hear hear people talking about um, our father David uh, or father Abraham. Your father can kind of reach back generations. But Daniel has deliberately skipped the generation and those other kings uh, in order to put these two stories of these two kings side by side. He wants us to see this very different story. He wants us to see how different they are. So that's why this story comes straight after his, uh, this story about um, Belshazzar comes straight after his grandfather's story. Now, super briefly, way back chapter 1, uh, Daniel uh, told us that God gave Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, And back then, Nebuchadnezzar took some vessels from the Jerusalem temple and put them into his God's temple, because in his mind, he defeated Judah. 
his God defeated the God of Judah. So he gave tribute to his God by putting the vessels in his God's temple. But after God humbled him, chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar realized that the Most High God rules now and always. So chapter 4, verse 35, just glance up. Uh, He, God, does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, everywhere. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar realized he was wrong. He defeated Judah because the Most High God gave it to him. He ruled Babylon because the Most High God gave it to him. His gods did nothing. The Most High God rules everything. So we've heard in those chapters the story of how God generously and patiently persuaded Nebuchadnezzar until he recognized the unseen realities. We basically saw him converted. Chapter 5 is a very different story. It begins with King Nebuchadnezzar and a thousand of his lords facing. That's a lot of people facing. And Belshazzar seems to be up on stage drinking in front of them. Verse, seven, verse 2 it seems to imply that he's tasted quite a lot of wine when he has a thought. He commands that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. Now as readers, we know why Nebuchadnezzar was able to bring them. Because the Lord gave them. The Most High gave them into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. So those vessels in the, in the, in the temple in Babylon actually say God is in control. God gave those vessels. That's why they're there. That's reality. But Belshazzar thinks those vessels tell a different story. Nebuchadnezzar's siege of Jerusalem ended with Jerusalem and its temple a desolate ruin, and in Belshazzar's mind, any god who allows that to happen to his people's city and to his own temple can't be much of a god. So Belshazzar calls for the vessels Nebuchadnezzar brought back from not much of a god's temple, and they're brought The golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple of the house of Jerusalem are brought, verse verse 3, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drink from them. But they don't just drink. See verse 4? They drink wine in praise to the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. See what they're doing? What they do is designed to mock the God whose temple the vessels were taken out of. The message is clear. Judah's God is a joke. The God who showed his grandfather an image of gold, silver, bronze, iron is nowhere near as great as gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So they praise those gods. They're mocking the God of Judah. Then verse 5, immediately the fingers of a hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. The king saw the hand as it wrote. So, so we see it right. We don't, we don't see the letters uh, that's writing just yet. We just see the king. 
His face turns pale. He's frightened. His knees knock together. His legs give way. He doesn't know what the writing says, but he obviously knows it's not good. <laughs> he shouts for his psychic advisors to come. The enchanters, Chaldeans, astrologers. These are the ones who just have failed every real life test that's been set to them in the book of Daniel. Anyway, Belshazzar, he wants them to come and to read the writing and tell them what it means. He promises them that whoever can read and explain, it will be clothed with purple and have a gold chain around his neck and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. Yeah, you see, that's why he would be third because Belshazzar himself is second. That makes sense, doesn't it? But true to form... The Babylonian psychic advisors, they can't read what's written. They can't explain what it means. At this point of the, of the book, you begin to wonder how they manage to keep their jobs. At this point of the book, we should be getting the message very clearly that human wisdom is limited. It's not useless. We can discover some things but not enough things. There are things that we will never uncover on our own. We need to be told. We need God to reveal reality to us. At this point, we're expecting Daniel to step forward. But verse 9, Belshazzar can see no way forward. He's just getting more and more stressed about the whole thing. Uh, and his lords, the thousand of them, they have no idea what to do. Now they're obviously making a lot of noise about their stress and confusion because the queen hears it, verse 10. This queen, by the way, Belshazzar's wives are, are mentioned in verse 3, so this queen is probably actually the queen mother, the wife of the king, or even the queen grandmother. But she, she comes in, she suggests her way forward. She brings dignity and wisdom into the chaos of the banquet hall, verse 11. She says, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans and astrologers, because an excellent spirit... Knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. She might actually be having a dig at him here, at the young king for dropping old Daniel, who his father had the good sense to make chief of the psychic advisors. Clearly she knows Daniel can read and explain what's been written. She has been shaped by the story we've been reading. Maybe she actually knows the Most High God. We're left to wonder. But she stands in complete contrast to Belshazzar. He doesn't even think of Daniel after all the other psychic advisors have failed. Now, as we read on, we realize he could have. His failure to learn isn't because he wasn't taught. He knows the story. But he hasn't learned from it. 
Thunderlord Rise in verse 13, and most of what Belshazzar says is a replay of what the Queen has just said about Daniel, but not all of it. Look at the first things uh, he says. The Queen didn't describe Daniel as one of the exiles whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. Belshazzar knows about Daniel and his story. He's saying it that way to put Daniel in his place. Daniel is just another thing like those vessels, just another thing that Nebuchadnezzar brought back from Judah to Babylon. Mentioning Daniel as an exile puts him in his place. As does the promise of power. See, when he promises power, Belshazzar is saying, hey, I'm way above you. I have power and authority, and I am the one who gives power and authority to others. Daniel says he can keep his gifts and his rewards, verse 17. And you're kind of wondering, why does he, why does he say keep your gifts and rewards when he's happy to take similar gifts and rewards from Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah, that makes sense as we read on. But before we get to see exactly why, Daniel tells Belshazzar the things he already knew. Verse 18. O king, the most high God, give, Belsh- give Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. Whom he would, he humbled. Now, it's so easy for us to underestimate the power that these ancient kings had. They answered to no one. Everyone obeyed them. They had godlike control over the lives of their people. Whom he would, whatever they wanted. Verse 18 and 19 say, The Most High God gave that power to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 20, But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. Verse 21, he was taken from being the most high human to being almost less than human. In among the animals, beginning to even look like an animal. And he stayed like that until he recognized reality. Until he saw that everything he has has been given by God. That God is God and he is not. That God rules now and always. Last week we read the worldwide proclamation that Nebuchadnezzar made after God showed him all of that. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 34, he told his story uh, that his reason returned to him. uh, And that then he blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Because his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom from generation to generation. Verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar praised and extolled and honored the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride is able to humble. The world heard it from Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's grandson heard it from Nebuchadnezzar. So in chapter 5, verse 22, Daniel says to him, 
You knew all this. Belshazzar knew his grandfather's story. That Nebuchadnezzar learned that everything he had had been given by God, that God is God, that he is not, that God rules now in all ways. Nebuchadnezzar's story told Belshazzar everything you, Belshazzar, have has been given by Judah's God. He is God and you are not. He rules now in all ways. But Belshazzar refused to learn. He refused to learn what he was taught. The compass cast with his grandfather's emphasize, <laughs> like just uh, with hit after hit after hit, uh, this machine gun like repetition uh, of you, yourself, you're in verses 22, 23. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, uh, which, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honoured. He has devoted himself to handmade gods. Handmade gods that can't say as he raises a goblet to toast them. They can't hear his voice raised in praise. He has exalted himself over the living and true God, the most high God, the, the Lord of heaven, the God who not made by human hands, the God who holds humans in his hand, who holds Belshazzar's breath and, and life in his hands, the God who knows all Belshazzar's attitudes and actions. That God is the God he did not honor. Did not honor is pretty light, isn't it? He mocked him by drinking from vessels uh, taken from his temple. He mocked him by drinking from those vessels in tribute to unseeing, unhearing, unknowing, handmade gods. And the living and true God saw and heard and knew. Verse 24, then, from his, from God's presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, many, many, tekel and parson. Now, most translations do what the ESV does, and transliterate instead of translating what was written. They put the letters, and give you what it sounds like, rather than what it means, what the Aramaic means. Um, you've got a Bible in front of you, there are footnotes from uh, 26, 27, and 27, 28 is it, 27. Um, many sounds like the Aramaic for numbered. Tekel sounds like the Aramaic for Wade. Perez, which is the singular for person, uh, sounds like the Aramaic for divided, uh, and, and sounds a bit like Persia. So the writing said numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Or maybe number, number, weight, division. So Daniel reads the words. Even once you know what they mean, it doesn't communicate a lot. 
But Daniel knows, because God's revealed to him, the significance of those words spoken, well, written, to Belshazzar. Daniel reads the words and then explains what they mean. Mene, number. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, wait. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, division. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. See, see now why Daniel wasn't very excited about getting to be third ruler of Babylon? (laughs) It's almost over. And he's told Belshazzar that the end has come. God is bringing it because Belshazzar deserves it. That God is taking the kingdom from Belshazzar and giving it to the Medes and Persians. So what does Belshazzar do? He acts in pride. He's just been told that his days are numbered, that his end has come, that he's been waited and found wanting, that, that God is taking his kingdom from him and giving it to the Medes and Persians, and he acts as if it's all fiction. He acts as if it's all untrue. He acts as if his kingdom is secure and he is the person who can raise and honour and give authority to whom he pleases. He says to Daniel, you've got third spot. But verse 30, that very night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. And as we read that, we realize what was going on back at the beginning of the story. Babylon was under attack. Babylon was under siege by the Medes and Persians. Uh, now we see that the gold head has fallen, that the, the silver arms and chest rule. God has done what God said he would do. <clears throat> Uh, An ancient author, uh, Xenophon, wrote about Babylon's defeat. Uh, He mentions that the city was taken during a night festival, that the king was killed. Uh, He suggested the city was uh, so well protected from siege uh, and that they had massive stores of food that could last for years inside their walls. Which is kind of helpful in understanding why Belshazzar was feasting. His face was a proud display of his capacity to keep his kingdom. They can attack, but we will not fall. We feast while they lay siege. The siege may also explain why he thought of bringing out the vessels uh, his grandfather brought back after he defeated Jerusalem by siege. Their God couldn't protect them in Jerusalem. Our gods will protect us in Babylon. We'll drink to them. Belshazzar refused to believe that everything he had had been given by God. He refused to believe that God is God and he is not. He refused to believe that God rules now and always. But his beliefs didn't change reality. The Most High God, he refused to recognize, judged him. It's a very different story to Nebuchadnezzar's. This story helps us see what sin is. See, what's wrong with what Belshazzar does? 
Daniel explains it in terms of what Belshazzar did with what he saw and heard. He heard his grandfather's story. At the very least, he knew how the Most High God had humbled his grandfather, and he knew that his grandfather became completely convinced that everything he had had been given by God. That God is God, that he is not, that God rules now in all ways. Belshazzar knew. God showed him reality. But Belshazzar hardened his heart. He acted as if what was revealed to him wasn't true. That's exactly what Old Testament Israelites had been doing for centuries when Daniel wrote. They had been shown so much more than Belshazzar was shown. They had stories stretching back uh, through David to Moses to Abraham to Adam. They had stories of, uh, true stories of men, women and children who believed what God spoke and about others who hardened their hearts. And this side of the coming life, death and resurrection of Jesus, we have those Old Testament stories, we have the New Testament ones too, God reveals reality to us through his prophets and apostles. Belshazzar's story asks us what we will do with what we've been shown. Humbly hear it and act as if it is good and true because we're convinced it is. Or harden our hearts as if we know a better way. This story helps us see what sin is, helps us talk about what sin is. And it confronts us with God's just judgment. God does not forgive everyone. God doesn't forgive everyone. Now this story shows us that his judgment is uh, just and fair. Belshazzar deserved the judgment, and he gets judgment. He is judged for what he did with what he knew. Uh, we, we see that it's fair, we see that he deserves it, we're not thinking, oh, come on God. God's judgment is always fair, it's always perfectly measured. Not a hair too much, not a shadow too little. When he judges, it is for what people did, with what they did see and what they did hear. In creation, in conscience, uh, in the scriptures. This story confronts us with God's just judgment. God does not forgive everyone. When he does judge, it is perfectly fair. And the big difference between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, the big difference in those stories, highlights the generosity of God in salvation. Highlights the generosity of God's salvation. You see, what's the difference between a king who brings vessels from God's temple in Jerusalem and puts them in the temple to honor, in the temple to honor his idols? What's the difference between that king and the king who gets the vessels out of that temple? So both kings meant to mock God. Both kings were intentionally mocking God for failing to save Judah. So, seeing what God did with Belshazzar, it helps us see. 
It would have been completely fair for God to judge uh, Nebuchadnezzar when he mocked God's power by putting those vessels into the temple to honor his idols. <coughs> it would have been completely fair for God to judge Nebuchadnezzar when he decided to push back against God's multi-metal uh, dream and to build his own all-gold statue that declared Nebuchadnezzar rules now in all ways. It would have been completely fair for God to judge Nebuchadnezzar for throwing his people into the burning fiery furnace, uh, for still boasting even when he got that warning in chapter 4. It would have been completely fair for God to judge, but he didn't. He had mercy. He generously and kindly and patiently persuaded He gave opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. He generously and kindly and patiently persuaded Nebuchadnezzar and turned his heart. This story, it highlights God's generosity in salvation. We see it all the more clearly at the start of Jesus' life, death and resurrection because we see what that forgiveness costs. We see God's generosity when he, because everyone who he forgives is someone who he could, he could simply have judged. And we see God's generosity because that forgiveness costs his son's death. This story highlights God's generosity in salvation. And it insists we don't presume on God's generosity. So it's not safe to mock God. It's not safe to assume we'll get away with it. It's not safe to assume our friends will get away with it. To assume they'll eventually give up rebelling and turn in trust. We shouldn't assume that God will keep giving opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Not for ourselves and not for others. This story insists we don't presume on God's generosity. Actually, it's not just that we don't presume. It's the other side of that, isn't it? It insists we see the urgency of grabbing hold of God's generosity and the urgency of proclaiming God's generous gospel. It helps us see the urgency of God's invitation as we hear it and as we speak it. Because everyone is immortal. Jesus is the only saviour. So let's urgently hold on to him. Let's urgently invite others to turn in trust to Jesus who saves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we get to hear how things are as you speak. That things that we couldn't discover and work out on ourselves, we can know because you have spoken them. Father, we ask that 
seeing this ancient king who hardened his heart against what you revealed to him that it would help us uh, see that you are just to judge fair but also help us see your extraordinary generosity that you save anyone Father, that knowing the great cost you paid, your son paid, it caused it to strike us even more. That seeing judgment fall would increase our sense of urgency as we hold on to Jesus, the only Savior. As we speak with friends who don't yet know him, who are not yet ready for the day he comes in judgment. Father, please make us urgent. And Father, please keep us knowing that you're the one who does the work of saving. As we saw last week, that uh, you could turn Nebuchadnezzar's heart. (laughs) What a rebel. What a trophy. Yeah, Father, please do uh, be at work in the uh, minds and hearts of those who you've placed us with that we might speak the gospel to them. Father, please save. In the Lord Jesus, amen.